Welcome to Gulf War, the battle after the war. Today I have Mary with Heir Mary's heirloom seeds with me, and we're going to be discussing growing food in relation to autoimmune disorders. Mary, go ahead and start. Um, the first thing I saw in your outline that you sent me is soil health, something that I never even considered. So if you could explain that a little bit. Definitely. So in order to grow the healthiest, most productive garden possible, soil health should be your, your first, um, first hurdle you tackle. So if you have sandy soil, you're going to need to build it up with compost. If you have clay soil, you're going to have to build it up with compost or build over it. If you have weeds or you have a lawn that you're looking to grow in, you're not going to want to use an herbicide um, such as Roundup to spray those weeds to get it ready for your garden because then you're going to kill the beneficial microbes in your soil. So most important, similar to our gut health, um, in order to have a healthy body, gut health is important as well and they're finding they're finding that more and more that it is an issue when you have a sick human that they might have uh, not so good gut health so it's very very similar to growing food soil health is first and foremost your most important part and awesome. to do now, is there anything that we should be looking for when we go to say home depot to buy dirt or where yep. you know as far as forcing our dirt we, at least on my end, I prefer to stay away from any type of synthetic fertilizers or anything really synthetic. So you really want the best, healthiest option. There's free options. That's even better for a lot of people that might be battling an autoimmune disease. You might not have the extra funds to throw in there to get um, expensive soil. And some of the organic soil can be really expensive. So you can find oftentimes free compost where you can actually have to pick it up or they'll deliver it for you. You can find mushroom compost. I know just locally about 30 minutes from here, I can get mushroom compost by the truckload and it's practically free compared to buying bagged soil. But yes, if you're going to get the bagged soil, you want to look for something that um, in particular I prefer if I have to buy bag soil, a brand called Kellogg, um, they are um, family owned and they do offer an organic option. I do stay away from some of the mega corporations like uh, miracle Grow. I definitely avoid those because I don't, I, I want healthy soil. I don't want something that has a bunch of chemicals added to it. Gotcha. Okay, that makes sense. Um, when somebody's trying to source a local grow, are you just looking for them on the internet or any tips or tricks on how to find somebody local? Yep, the, the absolute easiest is just to Google mushroom compost locally okay. and you're gonna find a bunch available there. There are a lot of places in Florida, I know that's where you're at, um, that you can get a lot of great compost options. There are places like a chip drop, where you can go online and or on your phone and you can put in your zip code and you can find somebody that's gonna drop chips at your place. Those will eventually decompose and give you a healthy soil. So if you're looking for a long-term option, 
Maybe you're not going to use the chips immediately, but you want to help build your soil, especially if you're going to be in an area for a really long time. And this isn't um, gardening isn't necessarily an instant gratification thing. As we know, we soil, we plant a seed and it's going to take a little while before we're going to get anything out of that. So if you are planning on a long term option, a chip drop or something similar would be great to build your soil. But yes, just Googling it is the easiest way to find something local that you're going to have either delivered or pick it up yourself if you can rent a truck or if you own a truck or if you have a friend that has a truck, you can always split a truck load. Here locally, we have the dump and they have a lot of the landscapers will drop their yard waste. And so the dump will chip all that yard waste up and then you can either pay somebody to load it into your truck or you can load it yourself for free. So there's a lot of options out there where you don't have to spend, for example, um, a four by four raised bed that's a foot tall. You're going to need about 16 cubic feet of soil. So, and it's going to compact. So even if you bought that out in the, at the garden center, it's going to get compacted as it goes. And most of those bags are about 1.3 cubic feet. So if you're talking about buying that soil at say five bucks a bag or here, California is ridiculously expensive and it's like eight bucks a bag. And if you need 10, 15 bags, it's gonna be, it's gonna get pretty pricey. You know, those are gonna be the most expensive radish you ever grew. Right. So definitely keep that in mind. If you can get some free stuff, you can definitely make your garden grow without spending a lot of money. And I'm all about growing on a budget. So uh, even if you have all the money to just go out and do spend all of it, I prefer not to. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. And a lot of us, especially in the veteran community, don't have the money to go out and spend like that. Right, yeah. That's why I, don't, I donate seeds to some uh, veteran-run community gardens because, you know, Every little bit helps. Right. So the next thing you were talking about is the ways to grow. And I know that's like crazy important. I got a ton of questions all relating to that. Um, like for instance, you know, when, when I showed you the pictures of the beds that I created based on what your YouTube video had showed, um, my beds are elaborate because I, I live in an HOA community. So if right. I built what you what you did, they would get mad at me. So I had to use yours and then expand on it. <laughs> and I, but it, I know, uh, I think that was your video that talked about bucket growing as well. Yes, I have a bucket garden video. So it's not very aesthetically pleasing. And I am totally aware of that. But fortunately, I kind of live. Uh, not really out in the middle of nowhere, but I don't have neighbors butt up against me that are, are staring right. into my garden all the time. So the raised bed garden that I have on my YouTube video is an easy, simple way. I actually did a three video series on picking out your lumber at Home Depot because I wanted, I wanted to give everybody a chance that if you have never grown anything before and you're just getting started, what do I do? You know, so we went from picking out the lumber 
to building the lumber of uh, the beds and then filling them up. So each of those beds costs, I would say roughly $38 for a four by four. And I, the reason I did a four by four is a lot of the beds that we started with out here on our property are a four foot by eight foot. But at some point in my life, I'm not going to have extra help that's going to be able to haul those beds if I need them moved. For example, I have a, a what do you call it, where you're, anyway, I have a drainage area over there. So if ever that drainage area has to be pumped, I have to move my raised beds. I can move a four by four, but I definitely can't move a four by eight. So that's why right. we went a four by four. It's a lot easier for one or two people to move. Now the bucket garden was easy because if you live in an area where you're not planting permanently, or if you don't have the physical capabilities of carrying all that lumber and carrying that raised bed, the buckets are very easy. And the third reason was because they were recycled. So again, getting back to growing on a budget, if you don't have the extra funds to go out and buy all that lumber or a truck, I don't have a truck, but I fit it in my little car. Um, so the bucket garden is easy. We use food grade buckets um, that you can get at the hardware store. I use recycled kitty litter buckets. And it's as simple as drilling drainage holes on the bottom, filling it up with your soil and putting it out wherever you are. You don't even have to have land. You can put it on a balcony if you are in a condo or an apartment building. You can put it on your backyard if you do have a yard. Um, and then it's also able to move if you decide to go crazy in your farming experience and throw some chickens in your yard. You can move those buckets to a different area so you don't have to worry about that. So the bucket gardening is a way of container gardening without having to buy expensive containers. And for people that might have trouble um, physically with kneeling and bending, the buckets can be placed up on a tabletop or you can just simply put them up on a higher level so that you don't have to bend over when you're gardening. Awesome. And I'm glad you mentioned food grade. I was going to say, I have a friend who's in the restaurant business and they occasionally get those big five gallon pickle buckets. Yeah. And I think those are food grade. They definitely so are. Somebody knows somebody like that who's willing to donate a couple of those buckets. That might be a, another way to get them inexpensively. Yep. Oftentimes you can get them from a sandwich shop or a bakery at any major uh, grocery store like Walmart or Vons or uh, Publix for you on the East Coast. Oftentimes they ship flour or even frosting. They'll ship that entire five gallons is full of frosting. So <laughs> as nice. gross as it sounds, um, it is cleaned out when it's done and it is food grade. In order for them to ship that stuff, it has to be food grade. So uh, buying it from the store will cost you anywhere from three to five dollars, but getting mm -hmm. it recycled sometimes can mean being free. Right. I thought that was cool. Um, my favorite part that I know absolutely nothing about, which is where you come in, 
is the pest control. And I know I, I had tons of questions about that. Um, and the default answer for everybody is use neem oil. Well, I know neem oil doesn't work with every bug or every critter or every animal that comes. So what do you say as far as companion planting um, and other things that are used, you know, like squirrel cages and what's, right. what's, the, what's the easiest repellent, I guess, for everybody to use? Number one is companion planting. Above all other options is companion planting. Companion planting is the way, the way it's a way of growing where you plant beneficial plants with other plants and you, one, deter bad bugs from going into your garden and then also attract bugs into your garden. So for example, the borage we plant everywhere in the garden. I, I mean, if there's one plant you need in your garden, it's borage, especially for those of you that want to grow tomatoes. Uh, it is a simple plant to grow. It reseeds itself everywhere. So if you don't want it to reseed itself, you're going to have to keep your eye on it and pull out those seedlings when they do. Because one plant could literally take over your entire garden. But it's not a bad thing. It, it's not going to hurt your garden, but it reseeds. And what happens is borage, you plant around just about every plant. Peppers, tomatoes, eggplant, squash. It attracts beneficial pollinators, bees, butterflies. And one of the biggest concerns people have when they're growing food is a lack of pollinators. Because unfortunately, all of your neighbors around you might be spraying. If you live close to a, uh, a golf course, they're spraying. Mm -hmm. So you lose a lot of those pollinators and you really need to attract them to your garden. So if you don't have pollinators, you will have a reduction in produce uh, production in your garden. But what borage also does is it attracts parasitic wasps. And the parasitic wasp will lay its eggs on a tomato hornworm. And tomato hornworms are those big, ugly green worms. And they have a little green horn at the end. And they can decimate a tomato plant in a day or two. So you've grown... Wow spent all this time and you've grown this beautiful tomato and then all of a sudden you go out there a day or two later and it sticks. And it's happened to me on more than one occasion. And it's frustrating, but it's also uh, a learning experience. So what happens is you see a small hornworm and it will have white eggs on top of it. And those are actually a parasitic wasp's eggs. And as they hatch, they feed on the tomato hornworm. So while that sounds horrible, <laughs> um, it will keep them from decimating your garden. And you really want to attract beneficial bugs to your garden so that they can do the work for you. It's a lot easier to let nature take its course than it, than it is to fight it all the time. So I, while I sell neem oil and while I sell diatomaceous earth, I really promote growing with nature instead of fighting it all the time. So you can find that information on my website or Mark, if you want to include the companion planting link when you post this video, that would be really helpful for people. It okay. tells you what to plant 
with certain things. So marigolds, for example, will deter nematodes. And you don't know you have nematodes because they are tiny microscopic uh, organisms in the soil that feed on the roots of your tomato. So you're oh, wow. not going to see what a nematode does to your tomato until it's too late. So companion planting is why I say it's, it's literally the first line of defense when it comes to bugs. And then you mentioned uh, neem oil. So neem oil works on munching insects. So it's, it's an internal um, process. So the bug, the bad bug, eats the leaves that you've sprayed the neem oil with. And as it digests that neem oil, it, I don't know the exact mechanism, but it interrupts their cycle and it kills them through their digestive system. Right. So it doesn't okay. necessarily work on contact. But while some people say it doesn't affect pollinators, some people say it does affect them. So you need to be careful with every single spray or powder you use, you might be causing a side effect in another insect. So again, that's why I go back to companion planting. There's no, there's nothing to buy, there's nothing to mix up, there's nothing to spray or dust, and it's a little more in nature. Then again, there's plenty of people that, that spray and that dust and they don't have a problem with that. So that's another option for you. Um, there is a, there's a recipe on my website and it is neem oil, Dr. Bronner's soap and water. And you mix that up in a spray bottle and then you're going to spray your plants. There's a few things. And we you can need get to all those things from you. Yep. I have okay. all of that. I'll, I'll give you the link so you can post it with a video. Uh, okay. What you need to keep in mind is when you use an oil in your garden, you can make your own pest control um, uh, sprays. And one of the recipes, I'll give it to you also. Uh, one of the recipes is garlic, hot pepper, and water. And you just blend it all up and you strain it out. And the properties of the garlic and the uh, the cayenne pepper or whatever pepper you use can deter bugs, one, because of the smell, and then also because of what it does to the insect. So there's some homemade sprays you can use as well. But again, going back to the oils, anytime you use something like that, you wanna make sure you do it either early, early in the night, in the morning, or late, late at night. Because the oil, uh, once the sun hits it, can burn your plants. So uh. timing is important when you use something like that. Okay. And does that work better in some environments or some climates better than others? Absolutely. The neem oil is going to work better overall in, in most climates because it's going to soak into the leaves. Uh, the other option I mentioned earlier was food-grade diatomaceous earth. Now, again, that's a slightly controversial issue with some people that are going more natural because it will affect good bugs as well as bad bugs. And right. it is razor sharp microscopic particles. And what it does is it shreds the outer hard shell of an insect 
and it dries out and it dies. The problem is that's going to do the same to a potato beetle or a cucumber beetle as it will a ladybug, which is a beneficial pollinator and ladybugs eat aphids. So it's kind of a double-edged sword when you're looking at sprays and powders because in one hand you're going to kill the bad bug and the other hand you're going to kill the good bug with it. Right. So. So it's uh it's probably a last line of defense. <laughs> yeah. It is in in my case it's the last line of defense. Now it is good for other things. Um I do use it around the perimeter of our house because we have um black widows here. So for me Killing or deterring black widows from coming into my house that might harm myself or my cats that are indoors that would probably try to eat it. Um, I'm totally okay with using diatomaceous earth around my home, but just not out in the garden in most cases. Gotcha. All right, so moving on to what to grow. I think um, now that, that one's, that's going to be a tough one. Yeah. So we discussed this, um, you and I, earlier. And yeah. what to grow is going to be different for everyone, right? Well, slightly yeah. different. Um, just to give you an example, because I know you have the medical background as well. Um, I'd say probably about 30% of us came back with GERD and the bulk of us came back with either IBS or IBD and some of them more severe than others. So they all pretty much follow some form of a GERD diet. So with that, <laughs> um, I, was reading, I, was, I was reading a lot about um, anti-inflammatory diet because you have a lot of of issues with inflammation. Um, yeah. IBS, in, in particular, is is a is a perfect example. So uh, one thing that stuck out in my mind as I was reading this because there are so many protocols for anti-inflammatory diets, anti-inflammatory foods, um, and the the thing that stuck out to me that they said was generalizations that require individualization. So my list is a generalized list that your listeners and your followers would need to tweak for their individual needs, if that makes sense. Yes. So um, anti-inflammatory foods uh, would include uh, hot pepper, uh, cayenne pepper is one of them. Uh, the capsaicin in the cayenne pepper is fantastic as an anti-inflammatory. But if you have IBS or you have other issues, the heat of that pepper might not be so good for you. So that's one that right. isn't on my list, but it's a perfect example of how it would work for somebody but not for everybody. Uh, let's see. 
cabbage. Cabbage is on the list because um, what was the sauerkraut? Sauerkraut is a um, a fermented food. And Mark, you said something about uh, fermented food for some people, but not for everybody. And what was that about? Um, the fermented foods. I, I actually did. I don't know if you're familiar. I don't know if I told you or not. But I did a low FODMAP diet because. I couldn't figure out what I was reacting to. As you know, I eat fairly healthy, but even some of those healthy foods were causing problems, and I wasn't sure which ones were causing them. So through that diet, it literally takes everything out of your diet. It gives you like a basic set of food to work with from each food group, and then you build as you continue to go. That way you can see... Um, like for the first week, I would do um, just a, a basic meal plan, and then I would add tomato, for example. By the end of the week, if I haven't had a reaction of any sort, then I know I'm okay with tomatoes, and I can continue on the next week with my initial plan and continue the tomatoes. And then I would add something else, let's say cabbage next. And I go through that week adding that cabbage. And, of course, I'm adding those, those parts that I'm adding, I'm adding in every which way. So I have a raw tomato. I have a, a fried tomato. I have a, you know, a, a grilled or you know, I make it every which, which way I can so that I see whether or not I'm reacting to it in a particular way. Cabbage, for example, I can't eat cabbage. In raw form, it's a very gassy vegetable, so it creates GERD, uh, right. GERD-type symptoms. So I have a hard time with that. But if I cook it down um, to where it's almost unedible, <laughs> I don't react to it. So it's a trade-off. And, and cooking it down okay. that far, as you know, I'm probably killing the benefit of the vegetable at that point. So that's kind of what the right. FODMAP diet does. And then when you get to the end, it's a 90-day diet. You cannot go past that 90 days because it's not a – not a healthy or beneficial diet in that aspect. You do lose weight during those 90 days. I lost almost 30 pounds just, you know, quick. Wow. So it's not something that you yeah. stay on long term. Um, I went from that to a keto diet, but as I was going through the keto diet, I realized even still there's foods that they say are good for you, but... I couldn't eat them because I was reacting to them. But at that point, it was good because I could tell right away, you know, what, what I added to my meal that caused the reaction. So the FODMAP diet gave me the education I needed to recognize what was happening. So that's, that's kind of okay. the way I went. They have food tests, allergy tests, and all that stuff that you can take. I don't know if they're going to be as effective. Maybe you have some knowledge in that area. I, Yeah, I I don't have as much knowledge as far as the, the allergy testing goes. I know uh, for some people the allergy testing is great, and they people have found specific things that they were allergic to that that was really helpful for. But then at the same time, I like what you were saying how more of like the elimination diet where you take all of the factors out and then you add them back in. So, for example, by cooking down the cabbage, it removed the stuff that was affecting you. So the same can be said for things like spinach. Some people, spinach or broccoli, 
both of them are on my list of things that are very good for you as far as the anti-inflammatory goes because of the micronutrients in that broccoli or in the spinach. And when you cook it down, you remove some of the other stuff. Some of them are high oxalate uh, varieties of veggies that some people can handle, some people absolutely can't handle. So Swiss chard, for example, that's on my list. Uh, they are beneficial pretty much every leafy green, very dark green, is in the anti-inflammatory list. But some people it affects them and some people it doesn't. So again, right. it's, it's where you kind of have to go, this works for me and doesn't work for me. Um, radish is on my list. Uh, there's a list of sulfur-rich foods that are supposed to be good for people that are uh, looking for a more anti-inflammatory diet. Um, and radish is on my list because a few things. Number one, if you're just getting started out as a home gardener and you want something easy, radish is at the top of my list. Radish takes about 30 days to grow from seed, and it's double duty. So you can eat the actual root, and then you can eat the green. And, I mean, it's, it's one of the easiest, by far one of the easiest. So I would say if you're just getting started out, radish is at the top of my list. Um, radish also is what we call the canary in the coal mine for calcium deficiency. So if you're growing tomatoes, which for some people are, uh, it, because it's a nightshade, some people don't eat tomatoes at all if they're on a more anti-inflammatory diet. Um, and we do right. have a few patients that I've offered to give them veggies from my garden and they go, oh no, I can't have tomatoes. I would be really sad if I couldn't have tomatoes because homegrown tomatoes are awesome, but some people can't eat them. And I understand that and recognize it. But if you are somebody that eats tomatoes still and wants to grow it. Radish, when you plant your seeds and it starts to grow, if you have a calcium deficiency in your soil, your radish will typically be very spindly. So it'll be very small and very skinny and it won't bulb. So okay. radish is a really good one. Number one, because you can eat it. You can, you can cook it and you can eat it raw and you can eat it pickled. So I mean, it really, it's got a lot of great benefits to it. Not only is it good for you, but you can eat it multiple ways. Um, if you are on a lower carbohydrate diet, you did mention the ketogenic diet, uh, which I did for a while, and it made a huge difference for me uh, physically as far as the inflammation goes. Uh, but I am now more on a lower carbohydrate diet. I wouldn't say keto diet, but I would definitely say low carb. So that means cutting out potatoes. I love potatoes, but you can substitute um, a radish. It's not the same. I will totally say that. Substitutes are silly. You're never going to get the same. Uh, the, same the, the, the expectation is there when you want to substitute something, and it's just not. So if you right. don't set yourself up saying, oh, this is going to be a great substitute for potatoes. No. You just... Go in open-minded, you take your radish and you can cook it up in a uh, beneficial oil 
like avocado oil or olive oil. Both of those are listed in the anti-inflammatory diets. So if you want to cook it up just like you would a potato, it, it does make a really nice option if you are avoiding things like potatoes. So if you are in the more low-carb anti-inflammatory diet, definitely go with radish. Okay. Um, you mentioned that. Is there anything else in the low-carb diet that we could use vegetable-wise? Um, just daily so that somebody's not just repeatedly using radish or repeatedly using spinach because people yeah. get tired of eating the same thing over and over when they don't know what they're doing. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So some of the more higher carbohydrate veggies um, or starches um, would be you would you would avoid corn um, because it is higher carbohydrate. Uh, I mentioned you would avoid potatoes. Um, you would avoid beets. If you are looking for a low carb option, these are things that you would avoid. But then at the same time, beets have their benefits as well for blood health. So yeah. you kind of have to figure out, again, you have to figure out what is best for you individually. Um, even if you don't like beets, the leaves of the beets are fantastic. So beets are part of the um, Swiss chard. They're in the same family. So okay. you eat Swiss chard, you can eat beets. If you like Swiss chard um, and you like beets, you can always try growing beets and then uh, using the actual root and the leaves. Um, onion is a higher carbohydrate veggie. Um, it is a root crop. And for some people, it can be inflammatory. So I've known people that have done nothing but cut out onions from their diet and they notice a difference. Um, that's an option, one of many. Um, garlic is a really good one that adds a lot of flavor, but doesn't require a lot of it. So if you only wanna grow a little bit of garlic, a little bit of garlic goes a long way. Um, and that is another part of the anti-inflammatory diet for some people. Uh, most people aren't eating it by the cupful, so you don't really have to worry about that. <laughs> uh, cauliflower is on my list of anti-inflammatory foods, uh, and it is a great uh, low-carb sub for some people. So say, say you like pizza and you don't eat wheat. Maybe you're, you are more gluten-free or gluten intolerant because as we're talking about anti-inflammatory stuff wheat for some people is highly inflammatory most of us any of us that have gulf war illness have some form of gluten issue okay yeah and it's people get people get annoyed sometimes when you talk about gluten intolerance because you know some people say well it's just a buzzword well if you've ever had a reaction to eating uh wheat when you are gluten intolerant you know it's not a buzzword. It's definitely a physical response that people get that can be anything from an upset stomach to a trip to the emergency room. So I get chest pain. I feel like I'm having a heart attack. Okay, so there you go. You know exactly what I'm talking about. So <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> you can't just order up a pizza or, or just, you know, uh, they sell the pizzas in the store, the, the crust, right? Mm -hmm. You can't just, have an easy option of, you know, 
dial up whatever and have it delivered to you. So um, cauliflower does make a good pizza crust. It can be used as a bread substitute. Um, again, with the substitutes, they're usually disappointing. So just stay away from the substitute part <laughs> and just make your own. So cauliflower uh, is steamed and it's uh, shredded, not mashed, but shredded. And then you are gonna add whatever kind of um, cheese or whatever you would add to it. There's recipes all over the place. Um, and sorry, Mark, I know we were gonna talk about recipes, but maybe we can do that on, on a follow-up one. Yes, but we can. Cauliflower can be used as a pizza crust or a bread for a sandwich. So if you're someone who doesn't do wheat, cauliflower is a fantastic option. Okay. Um, and your list also, you have asparagus, and you noted uh, perennial? Yes. So a perennial is, in the vegetable world, in growing, you have a perennial and an annual. An annual is typically something that you plant it once, you harvest it, and it's done. Whereas a perennial can last multiple years. So sometimes that's a pepper maybe three years. Sometimes that's um, artichoke, which is about five years. And sometimes it's asparagus that you can get almost 30 years or more out of a single planting. Wow. So you want bang for your buck? Definitely asparagus. Because it is high in micronutrients, um, it's a green, not a leafy green, uh, but it is. it does have anti-inflammatory benefits to it it's on my list and an asparagus picture picture a tree upside down so you have the roots are the leaves that are growing spreading out and then you have these little shoots of asparagus at the top so you have this giant network of roots growing and then you have these little shoots of asparagus that come out all over it. So this plant needs lots of room to grow. Uh, if you are in an area like Florida, where it gets very, very hot, they don't last as long. But if you have a more moderate climate, they can last 30 years or more. There are wild varieties of asparagus. So some people just go to roadsides where they see them or they find them or they know they have a plant, uh, a crop planted. Uh, it's typically, I believe it's typically a spring harvested plant. So okay. it doesn't continue to produce throughout the year. Um, you harvest it and it's done, it goes dormant, but that plant stays alive and dormant till the next time it's ready to produce. Nice. And is that something that we can grow in a bucket or is that something you need like a four by four bed or bigger? You definitely need a four by four bed or bigger um, okay. because it needs that much room to grow. The, long, the, the bigger the area you have it in, the more productive it will be. So if you have a larger property and you want to grow something that's going to continue to produce for years without needing a lot of attention, um, asparagus is a great option, but it does need a lot of room to grow. Okay. 
I'm going to skip the next one. I'm going straight to turmeric because that's a buzzword in the sports industry. <laughs> Educate us on turmeric because I know there's turmeric, there's curcumin, there's, uh, uh, gosh, I forgot the name of the other one right now, but there's like three of those that all wrap around turmeric. Uh, there's also ginger. ginger. Uh, so turmeric is a root. It is, it, it's a plant that grows and the root is actually what you eat or what you harvest. And to be honest, I don't sell the turmeric roots, but chances are if you have a grocery store nearby and you have, and they sell turmeric or they sell ginger, you can grow it straight from the stuff that you would buy at the grocery store. Um, they are, you know, and I should have, I should have brought it with me, but I, I didn't even think to do it for for the video but they they can be very small pieces or they can be very large pieces um right. and that really just depends on how it was harvested uh similar to pot well potatoes if you've ever grown potatoes or or a root crop um they're tubers so it looks it a turmeric root kind of looks like a baby potato um, it's a very small tube and it just grows under the ground. So when you plant those little shoots of greenery come out of it and then you plant it in the soil and you allow it to grow. And as that plant grows very large, uh, there are certain indicators as far as when it's ready and then you would pull it up. Now, when you pull it up, that plant now has multiple different tubers along the root system. So you've got roots, a tube roots a tube and and so forth and you can grow that in a bucket and it's okay. it's not the easiest to grow but it is easy enough that you could definitely do it and because it likes tropical climates if for those of you in florida it's definitely a great crop you can grow awesome i'm going to circle back to the beginning <laughs> you were talking about companion planting okay um, Everybody can buy seeds from you, Mary's Heirloom Seeds. What I want to know is, is there a seed pack that we can buy from you that has some of the things that we've discussed to support autoimmune and, you know, maybe a, a starter pack that they can take and take your instruction and go out and plant these seeds and have their basics and set up. So you have your companion planting set up with the particular item that you're trying to grow um you know that that kind of setup so i don't have i don't have one specific but i can i'm more than happy to make one for you but okay. i do have a few options so i have a companion planting kit uh the companion planting kit you choose which variety you want to grow so you have your choice of tomato pepper and eggplant i think so those are, there, there might be one or two more options. And unfortunately, none of those are on this list, but that's, a, I'll talk about a separate one in a second. And each one of those companion planting kits includes marigold, basil, and borage. So three companions that we discussed that are great to grow for those specific crops. It also comes with coconut core pellets. And we didn't, I don't think we talked about that. But I do, no, have, I do have one I can show you. So if you're, if you're seed starting and we're talking about kits and getting started, 
I sell this little kit. Um, this isn't, this is totally separate, but the coconut core pellets are what is included in the companion planting kit. This little disc is compressed coconut core. So you can take this without having to have a whole garden set up. And if you want to get started simply, you can use the coconut core pellets and plant in your own kitchen or garage. And you don't have to go out into your garden yet. So say you're a month out from actually planting outside, but you want to get started right away. Or maybe you're like me and you're antsy and you don't want to have to wait for anything to, to be going on outside. You want to do it right now. So right. in December when it's cold outside, I'm in my kitchen planting these little pellets specifically on varieties that take longer and I don't want to have to wait. So the coconut core pellets are helpful and that's included in my companion planting kit. Now the other option that might work um, without adding anything new, um, I'm more than happy to add a new option for you specifically for your followers. But I also have three uh, keto garden combo packs. And that was a homesteader friend of mine who asked me that she's keto and she wanted a combo pack that she could grow without having to have the extras that might not be keto. I've got so many combo packs on my website right now uh, that people can choose from that okay. aren't necessarily geared towards one way of eating or another, but they're good garden packs. Um, the Mary's Garden Pack is my favorite because it's all of the varieties that I grow that I love that are easy. Um, so the three keto garden packs will be lower carb um, anti-inflammatory. So a little more geared towards, towards what we discussed today, but not exactly. Gotcha. All right, well, we're coming to the end here, so I'm gonna go ahead and wrap this up. We got a lot of good information in this video and I look forward to the recipe venue. That's the one I really wanna see. <laughs> I want to hear that. <laughs> so it was really good to talk to you, um, and we'll we'll definitely circle back around and do the the recipes. Um, if there's anything else that we can cover at that time, we'll try and cover that as well. Anything that we may have missed. Okay. All right. We'll go ahead and close this up. Thank you very much for spending your time here today. Uh, we we got a good hour end of information. So awesome. I just wanted to say um, thank you very much. I hope everybody has a great rest of their week. And don't forget to hug a vet.